God. Genesis chapter 17. I'll read the first 14 verses. Genesis chapter 17. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God had said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee and their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man, child, in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. And he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant, and the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. A promise, a potentiality, and what else? A possibility, right. That's what we're talking about tonight. The promises, the potentialities, the possibilities that God has established in his covenant. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the promises that you made. And we thank you that those promises are still being fulfilled. Give to us greater faith to move out in faithfulness according to the word that you have commanded us. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 15, you have the formal establishment of God's covenant with Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 15, and there you have the establishment of God's promise and covenant to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, you have the institution of the seal of the covenant. What is a seal? And we're not talking about something that swims around in the water, but we're talking about a stamp and a testimony of certainty and assurance. That's what a seal is. Sometimes when you sign a piece of paper, that is a seal and a signature that it really is a true piece of paper that you wrote 
and represents your ideas. So in Genesis 15, you have the establishment of the covenant. In Genesis 17, you have the seal of the covenant. Now, what do you have in between? I'll ask this front row here. What do you have in between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17? Think about it for a minute. What's between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17? Genesis 16. Of course, Genesis 16 is between Genesis 15 and 17. And in Genesis chapter 16, you have Abraham's lapse of faith. His lapse of faith. God had given him that solemnization of the covenant in Genesis 15, that solemn moment in which he saw the vision of God passing between the pieces. But in Genesis 16 already, you see Abraham's lapse of faith in which he encourages his wife, Sarah, or in which Sarah encourages Abraham to go to Hagar and to raise up a seed by the natural process. So what you have in Genesis 17 is a seal, a reaffirmation, a reconfirmation of the fact, a permanently abiding seal to remind Abraham of the certainty of the promises that he has made. In other words, Abraham's vision may have faded in his memory. Abraham may have thought, did I really see God passing between those pieces? Was it really God that was there or was I just dreaming? But now in Genesis 17, he causes Abraham to recognize a seal of the covenant that binds him and Abraham in a permanent way in relationship to one another. It's interesting in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, there is a reference to the seal of the new covenant and that is the Holy Spirit something that is given as the permanently abiding seal of the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ. So that you can't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or by every doubt to make you wonder, is Christ really my Savior? Well, you have the seal of the Holy Spirit there, the constantly abiding Holy Spirit living within you to remind you that you really do belong to Christ. Now let's look at this seal of the Abrahamic covenant and see how it was to function in that covenantal relationship. Now to feel something of the impact of that seal, first of all, it's important to recognize that you are a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Just as you are a part of that covenant established in Genesis 15, in which the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, just as you are also a benefactor of the covenant with Noah in that the sign of the rainbow is still something that is there that means something to you just as much as it meant something to the people in Noah's day, so also you are a benefactor, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, of the covenant with Abraham. You are grafted into the true Israel of God and you are an heir, an inheritor of all the promises. It has been said that when you graft a branch in, it, it often becomes even stronger than the natural branch. And so when you are grafted by faith into the stock of Abraham, 
you become an heir of the same promises that were given to Abraham. So this passage is speaking not just to the Jewish people, but it is speaking to all those who by faith are related to Abraham. Now, first of all, notice how God commits himself and makes it clear what he is going to do for Abraham in verses 6 and following. He says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Abraham still had no children. He was 99 years of age now and his wife was past the point of being able to bear any children. And yet God says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations come of you. In verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. Now just think a minute. Everlasting, what does it mean? It doesn't mean simply that it is from eternity to eternity. It means an unbroken succession of covenantal relationship. Everlasting in the biblical concept isn't that it just goes on forever. It is that it is an unbroken relationship. From generation to generation for eternity, I will be in covenant with you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your seed after you. You know, you people sitting right here on the front row, one day you're going to have children, probably. The Lord will give you children. Some says, no, I don't want any children. But one day the Lord may give you children. You can even now begin to claim God's promises of salvation, not only for yourself, but for your children that are yet unborn because the promises of the covenant are to you and to your children. That is a part of God's covenant. He binds himself in his graciousness not only to you who believe in Christ, but also to your children after you for the generations to come. Now notice the last phrase of verse 7 to be your God and the God of your seed after you. It's not just a formal, external, national relationship that God is establishing with Abraham and his children in this context. It is that he will be their God, that he will be their Savior, to be their God and the God of your seed after you. I will be possessed of them, and they will be my possession. So it's not just the maintenance of a nation that is being involved here. It is not just God's commitment to maintain the nation of Israel that is involved here. It is that he is to be the God of those people. Verse 8, The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your seed after you, and I will be their God. Now you have to understand the meaning of the promise of the land that was made to Abraham. What is the meaning of that promise of the land? Is it that God was simply interested and Abraham was simply interested in a little real estate in Palestine? Is that the idea? No, it's a picture of a return to paradise. The promise of the land is associated with the restoration of paradise. The picture here is that 
ultimately of the new heavens and the new earth that God's people who are in covenant with him shall inherit. Now you can see that from a new covenant perspective if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and see exactly what Abraham was looking for. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. See what God says in Hebrews 11 verse 8? By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Even Abraham saw through the idea that it was just that material land that he was to possess. He was looking for a city, an eternal city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, that is the heavenly Jerusalem that God would bring down from heaven in the future. Look down at verse 13 and you can see a further exposition of this idea. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a a distance. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. A heavenly one. That was the hope and the expectation of Abraham with respect to the land. That is how even he ultimately understood the promise of the land of Canaan, that it would be the heavenly land that he would ultimately inherit and possess. So that's what God is going to do for Abraham in the covenant. It's quite a commitment, an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant with you and with your seed that you will be restored to the blessings of paradise. Now look at verse 9 and you see the obligations that Abraham has in this covenant. A covenant is a two-way thing. And Abraham has responsibilities also. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. Now stop right now. It's very often suggested and argued and we need to recognize here and And we're all among friends. We're talking about this, not being dogmatic and saying this is the ultimate and only way to view Scripture and Scripture truth. But this is the way that we understand it from this perspective and this question. We're talking about ultimately the relation of circumcision as an old covenant seal and baptism as a new covenant seal. It's often suggested that if you baptize infants or bring them into the covenant relationship, then you're neglecting the responsibilities, the obligations, the responsibility to respond to the covenant. You're dealing with something that is automatic there. But notice what the scripture says. As for you, you must keep my covenant. There are obligations laid on parents in covenantal relationships. 
They're obligations that are yours. And if you simply come automatically and say, my children are a part of the covenant and therefore I don't have to worry about them, I don't have to do anything about them, I can just presume that they're going to be saved, you don't understand the first thing about the covenant. You must keep the covenant. Faithfulness is an obligation that is laid upon the parents in the covenant relationship. And it is your vow and commitment to God to pray with and for your children, to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to teach them the things of your holy religion. And if you think that the covenant promises just work automatically, then you really don't understand the covenant at all. For God begins in this context by saying, you have an obligation. You must keep my covenant. Now notice also in verse 9, you and your seed after you for the generations to come. They also must keep the covenant. Sometimes it's objected, oh no, we can't assume that our children are in the covenant. They had, they, because that assumes that they don't have any obligations. Well, again, you don't understand the basic principles of the covenant if you read the scripture and the covenantal relationship with God in that way. Here it, it plainly says that the children also are obligated to keep the covenant. The children also have responsibilities to listen to that training which is given to them to join with their parents in those prayers that are taught them and with their own hearts to turn and be faithful to God even as their parents are training them to be faithful to God. There are not only blessings in the covenant, and this is one of the most awesome things to remember. Not only are there blessings in the covenant, there are also curses, special curses in the covenant. You young people... You children, you need to recognize that when you're in covenant, that is when God has bound himself to you and to your parents, then that gives a special responsibility to you, a special obligation that you have. And if you do not live up to those obligations, if you do not exercise the faith that is called upon you to exercise in that covenantal relationship, then God already has spoken special curses upon the person who does not live in covenantal relationship. And what awesome curses they are. Curses that are not even spoken over the unbeliever or those who are outside the covenant are the curses spoken over those who are in the covenant and then depart from that covenantal relationship. You must keep my covenant and your children must keep my covenant or the special curses of the covenant will come upon them. Verse 18, This is my covenant with you and your seed after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now here it's very interesting to notice just how closely bound together is the covenant and the seal of the covenant. The two are almost interchangeable. The covenant and the seal of the covenant. This is the covenant. This is the first manifestation of obedience to the covenant. Manifestation of submission to the covenant. That you are to bring your children to bind them in covenant relationship. Now here let's understand the proper perspective. Your children must be circumcised. 
It's not that salvation depends upon the application of the seal of the covenant. It's not that baptism is necessary for salvation. It's not that circumcision was necessary for salvation. That's not what is being taught here. But it is interesting to notice that it is being clearly taught that natural birth is not enough to save. Here was an Israelite, a child of Abraham. And yet by circumcision, there was a testimony being given to all the world that the parents recognized that this child came into the world a sinner. The parents said, oh, look at this cute little baby. Oh, yes, cute. But with a depraved nature. Just this, a few weeks ago, my brother had the privilege of having four of his grandchildren baptized from four of his different children that were being baptized. And during the whole service, one of those children was screaming and crying and so forth. And in the middle of the service, the preacher said, now, yeah, we know that all these children are sinners, but some manifest their sin a little bit more than others. And the baby kept on crying during that service. And as they were concluding the service, the pastor said, well, I want you to especially pray for this particular child. And somebody must have been praying because as they were walking down the aisle and leaving that service, the, that particular child was you know, a little bit older and turned around and said, goodbye, just in <laughs> perfect obedience or submission at that particular point or in good spirit at that particular point. Well, we do recognize that our children are in need of cleansing. and That's what Abraham was doing when he brought his child to be circumcised. It was a, a seal of cleansing a sign of the recognition of guilt, of the need of the removal of the sinful nature. It was an acknowledgement of the fact that this child was depraved and was in need of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When a child is brought for baptism, that's not a sign of pride. It should not be a sign of pride on the part of the parents that the child is brought into the covenant. It should be a sign of humility a recognition that this child also is a child that needs cleansing. So, verse 11, you are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now this word for sign here is very important because it includes both the idea of seal and sign. Our word Signature, sign nature is an appropriate one. When you put your signature on a check, you are sealing the fact, I trust, that there is that much money in the bank and that someone can go and claim that money from his bank. When you put your signature on a contract to buy a certain item, you are sealing the fact that you have enough income to pay for that particular item. When you make a signature of a commitment to do a certain job, you are signing yourself by saying you have the resources and the abilities to fulfill that particular task. You are guaranteeing that a certain thing is going to transpire. Now that's where this matter of baptism 
or circumcision raises lots of questions. What kind of guarantee can we have in the context, particularly of the bringing of infants to include them in the covenant relationship? Well, this has to be understood on a two-level basis. It's simple, but there's a little complexity here. Now, what is this two-level basis of the assurance of the certainty of the covenant? First of all, on the external level, there is the guarantee, the witness given, the testimony, the sealing of the fact of the testimony before the world that you acknowledge that this child or this person is in need of cleansing. It is a testimony that is given to the world and that speaks of the effectiveness of the sign or the seal. Now let me summarize that once more again. Every time a person is baptized in church, whether adult or infant, there is an effective signal given to the world. There is an effective witness given that we in the Christian community acknowledge sin, the need of cleansing from sin, and the provision by God of a way of cleansing. And that sign goes out in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit every time a baptism occurs. It's effective every time. Just as the preaching of the word is effective as a witness to the world, if it is true to the word of God, whether people believe it or not, so baptism in the new covenant, circumcision in the old covenant, is always effective as a witness to the world and a witness to the church concerning the faith of the Christian community. And that's an important thing, that the effective witness is given forward to the world. Now, furthermore, the seal of the covenant is always effective in binding someone into the external community of the covenant. It's effective in doing that. In Old Covenant Israel, in Old Covenant Israel, whenever a person was circumcised, they were effectively included into the nation of Israel. And in the New Covenant community, whenever anyone is baptized properly, they are effectively included into the covenant community of God. And that is a very significant thing. That's not a thing to minimize at all. For what happens when you're bound in that community? It means that God's people are committed to pray for you. It means that God's people are committed to instruct you. It means that you are also committed to grow up in the understanding of the word of God as it is communicated in that community of the covenant. It is a very important thing. Not only do the parents commit themselves to pray with and for the child at the time of baptism, but the congregation as well, because we are a community of the covenant, commit ourselves to pray with and for that child and to raise that child as much as we can in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And that is a very important thing. You might think that it's not an, a significant thing that a person is a member of the citizenship of the United States of America, but it is a very important thing. Now, his heart may be somewhere else. He may not be in his heart a loyal citizen of this country. But if he's a member of this citizenship, of this community, that is a very significant thing. 
And so it is. Being bound into the community of the covenant is a very significant thing. Now that's just on the external level. And the covenant seal is always effective. Now the question is, are the children of God's people in the covenant? Or are they not in the covenant? Are they a part of this covenant community? Or are they not a part of this covenant community? It's either yes or no. It's either in or out. And the whole of the testimony of Scripture as I see it is that from the beginning of Scripture until the end, there is the faithful testimony of the Word of God that the children of believers are a part of the covenant community. And therefore, they should be sealed in that relationship and receive the benefits of that covenant relationship. Now, that's the external level. Now, let's go to level two, the deeper level, the internal level. Is there an effectiveness? Is there a sealing power of the covenant with respect to the possession of the spiritual blessings of salvation for the one being baptized or the one being circumcised. Now, I'm going to fudge a little bit here, maybe, but I don't think I'm really fudging. But I'm going to appeal here to the doctrine of election. We've had enough of the covenant to this point to understand that from the very beginning, from Genesis 3.15, there is a reason that a part of the seed of the woman hates Satan in his cause and a reason that the other part does not. What is the reason? It is because of God's sovereignly placing in the heart of some people a hatred for Satan and his causes and God's not placing in the heart of some people that same hatred and animosity against Satan. Election is a reality that we must deal with because it is taught consistently in the word of God. Now, whether adult or whether infant, when a child is brought and sealed by the covenant sign, if they are elect, that seal is effective. It is effective in binding them in covenant relationships. And it communicates a blessing to that child or to that adult. And you know, sometimes even an adult may come and confess Jesus Christ before the church and yet not really be saved. And yet there is an effectiveness of that baptismal seal. He may believe later on, but the fact that he believes later on is an indicator that the seal of the covenant was effective. Now we get some indicators in the word of God that God's Holy Spirit may cause some children to be born again while they're still in their mother's womb. Now that may sound shocking to you, but if you read Luke chapter 1, you read of John the Baptist leaping for joy in his mother's womb because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now how could an infant be filled with the Holy Spirit, leap with joy in his mother's womb apart from being born again of the Spirit of God. So it can happen. Some children already may be born again of the Spirit of God at the time that they receive the sealing ordinance of the covenant. 
And obviously, they would receive the blessing of that bond that God has established in the covenant relationship at the time of the application of the seal. In the case of some elect people, they may be baptized today, but 11 years later, be born again of the Spirit of God. But nonetheless, that application of the seal was effective in changing the inner heart and sealing that person in the possession of the blessings of the covenant. Not that the seal actually changed the heart, but it sealed them in the possession of that change of heart. And it's important because your child, as he grows up in the covenant, may receive all kinds of blessings from an awareness of the fact that he has been bound in covenant with God from birth that he has been sealed in that covenant community of God from childhood. Many blessings will acquire to that particular child if the covenant is dealt with and taught truthfully and in proper context to the child. So that's the meaning of this idea, the sign or the seal of the covenant. Now verse 12 For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Eight days of age. Very interesting. There's something called the K factor now. I'm not going to try to impress you here. I'm just going to tell you that uh, I had a medical student in, in in a seminary classroom and he brought me this article from a from a medical journal, and he said, here, I want you to read this about circumcision. And there it is in the medical journal. There's something called the K-factor in the blood, a certain vitamin, I suppose, or whatever it is, some chemical, that causes the coagulation of the blood. Now, that K-factor drops radically down upon birth and stays way down until about the fifth or sixth day. And then it comes dramatically up. And between the seventh and the tenth day, it is at its, one of its strongest peaks. And at eight days of age, God commanded that the infant was to be circumcised. Now, God knew what was going on in the human bodily factors at that point. Abraham didn't have any idea of what was going on. It is interesting to notice that while there was circumcision being practiced in all the nations around Abraham, it was practiced in a different way. Not at eight days of age, but about 14 or 15 years of age. When the child reached the stage of puberty, it was a sign of introduction into manhood and strength of prowess and ability to stand up for himself that the child was to be circumcised. That's the way they practiced it in the nations around but for God's people at eight days of age. The child was to be bound in covenant relationship with the Almighty God. The Lord's wisdom is higher than man's wisdom. Now notice also that it says, including those born in your household are bought with money from a foreigner. Now you know it's very interesting that very often people try to define Israel as a racial or ethnic community. You ever think that way? 
of Israel as a racial or ethnic community? Well, here is right now. This is the first, the first Jew. Abraham is the first. Before, the, before that, he, what was Abraham anyway before he became a Jew? He was just a Gentile like anybody else. He was just a pagan over on the other side of the river. And all of a sudden, God said, you are to be my person. But immediately, even before the first child of Abraham was born, he says, any Gentile can become a full-fledged Jew by the process of proselytism. Now, I have a book here by a, you can tell that this man is Jewish. His name is Jacob, Benino Jacob, and he has a commentary on the book of Genesis. I want to read just two little statements that he has in this book about circumcision. This is a Jewish perspective on circumcision. He says on page 115, Circumcision is a national and religious symbol and remains such beyond the people that are descended from Abraham by birth. Every stranger who submits to it receives Abraham as his father and becomes an Israelite. How interesting. What would happen if an Assyrian proselyte should marry a Babylonian proselyte? They would have children. Would those children be Israelite? Yes, they would be Israelite, but not one drop of Abrahamic blood would flow through their veins. He says on page 233, Indeed, differences of race have never been an obstacle to joining Israel, which did not know the concept of purity of blood. Circumcision turned a man of foreign origin into an Israelite from the very beginning. Do you understand that you are a Jew? A Jew is simply a word for those have been set apart, not for racial characteristics, but those from every tribe and nation and kindred and people that have been set apart to be God's own holy people. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, whose circumcision is of the heart and of the spirit and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So from the very beginning, the anticipation was there of this day in which all of this church, whether of Jewish or of Gentile origin in terms of racial background, you are the Israel of God. Finally, he says, My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It was a solemn obligation for Israel. The one who failed to observe the order of God would have broken God's covenant. Now by the Lord's grace in subsequent weeks, we will look at the new covenant fulfillment. Look at those scriptures which bind together baptism and circumcision and see how you today also are bound in that same covenant made of old with Abraham. Let us stand for closing prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that 
Your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts than our thoughts. And we come and ask that you will continue to help us, O Lord, to understand your plan and purpose for us. We thank you for grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that has saved us from sin. And while we were still dead in trespasses and sins, while we were an alien people who had chosen to be rebellious against you, you nevertheless caused us to come to Christ through faith. Bless and help us to be faithful in our covenant relation. Bless our children and our children's children, even to a thousand generations, that we may honor the name of our Savior who gave himself for us. For we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit abide upon you all both now and forevermore. Amen.